0: Friends, I want to ask you, who among the gods, so-called gods, could give this promise to you? Ask, and it shall be given to you. What God can do that for you? What God can say, seek, and you shall find, nor knock, and the door shall be opened unto you? What God can answer prayer? What God is interested in what you need? Who among the idols of this world cares what you truly need? Only the God who created the heavens and the earth. Only the God who has given his only son to redeem you. And uh, that God has come to bring about His kingdom, to bring about His reign. And one day, when He shall come again, that kingdom will be visible for all the nations of the earth. But until that day, His kingdom is hidden among us, in us. No one can see it with their physical eyes. It can only be perceived and seen with the eyes of faith. That's why we're called to seek it. Seek it first. Seek that kingdom above everything else. The God who brings about his kingdom. Oh, friends, I hope that we are encouraged by His truth, to realize that we have a responsibility as we live life, the mundane life, the day-to-day life, whatever we do as we work and spend time with one another, that above all things we seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Well, with that thought, I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of James As the book of James, uh, as we are going through our sermon series through this book, James chapter 5, I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 6. You're turning your Bibles there. Um, If you don't have a Bible that's yours, you're welcome to get a Bible that's provided in the chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 1013, 1013. And if you don't own a Bible... We'd love for you to grab one of our Bibles, provide a chair in front of you, and take it home. We'd love for you to have it and read it, and let the Lord use the reading of of His Word in your life to bear much fruit. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning from James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your, your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. Now this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Join me in prayer as we seek the assistance of the Holy Spirit upon the preaching of His word. Father, we confess that in our own power and ability, we are not able to understand your word clearly. Not because your word is lacking anything, but because our hearts are often dull. So, Father, we pray, would you, by your Spirit, would you enable us to hear your voice, enable us to hear your word, understand it, and apply it. Father, we pray that you would make the gospel A precious experience, a precious truth for our hearts this morning. We pray that your glory would be manifested even in the hearing of your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. An interesting passage this morning. What do you do with it? Well, before we we jump into it, I want to make sure we understand um, how the Bible speaks about Riches. Want to make clear that that we all understand the Bible is not against riches. We often see prosperity of riches as a blessing that God gives to His people. Abraham, Job, David. Even in the New Testament, we read examples of rich people who have followed Jesus and served Him. The tomb. That Jesus was laid in, was provided by a rich man. Only rich people had their own private tombs, and this man gave it to Jesus to be buried in him in that tomb. Paul also says to the Corinthian church, uh, he says, "Not many of you are rich or were rich." Well that means at least some of them were. Not many, but at least some. So riches are not evil. They're not a sinful uh, reality or a sinful thing in and of themselves. And yet the Bible has many passages that warn us about the snares of wealth. I love how John Frame, one of the systematic theologians, said in his book, The Doctrine of Christian Life, he said, Sinners tend to be preoccupied with wealth above everything else. In our passage, James is con- condemning certain sins that are often connected with wealth or with a desire to acquire wealth. But to understand this passage, uh, we need to get a clear picture of who James is writing to. Well, first of all, he's writing this letter to the Christians uh, in, in these various regions of Asia Minor. But in this passage alone, he seems to be addressing people with a very, very harsh tone. Well, this is not the first time James addresses Christians with a harsh tone in this letter. If you want to remind yourself of that, just read chapter 4. And uh, it reminds you how James can address Christians with a harsh tone, uh, with a tone of confrontation. But in this passage in particular, the kind of things that, that these people are doing... It's just mind-boggling. Um, the, after all, we see people who are causing or living the, in defraud or defrauding people of their resources. My goodness, Christians shouldn't be doing that. Is, it, is, it, is he writing this to Christians? Something that he could be writing to Christians who, who have gotten so low have walked away from the ways of the Lord so so far that they are depriving their own employees of of the wages that they are due. It's also possible that James is not writing to Christians who are rich, but he's writing to non-believers who are rich. And this could happen in two ways. One... Um, some of those rich non-believers may have showed up to church once in a while. We know that in chapter 2, James addressed the, these Christians for the sin of partiality, that when someone with, a, with an expensive clothing, or someone who's rich comes in their audience, uh, they would give them the front seat. And when someone who's poor would come in the audience, they would give them a, a lowly seat. So we know it's possible that some rich non-believers would come to church, would show up to church, and if that's the case... And that's what James is referring to here. My goodness, can you imagine what kind of message these rich non-believers who showed up to church on a particular Sunday morning would just show up, and they get this message of condemnation against their riches? Man, that's not a way to grow the church. That's not a way to really raise funds for the church, condemning the, the, the rich guests who are coming into the Service? Yeah, I, I don't know, friends, if, if any of you would have the guts to invite uh, Apostle James to come and lead a revival service. he might scare people off. But that's the way he preached. It's also possible that James was writing not so much to the non-believer rich guests who would be coming to church he could just as well speak to the non-believer rich people who would never come to church. And in that sense, you may wonder, why would James address those who are not in the service? Why would James write and speak about people who would not come to the Christian gatherings? Well, it's possible he would write that um, to encourage those who were listening And encourage them and warn them about the snares that are there for the rich. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the prophets would speak God's word not only against God's people to confront them and to correct them. But oftentimes the prophets would speak God's word about the nations that afflicted God's people. And those nations like like Assyria or Egypt or Edom, those nations would never hear the word of the Lord. Meaning, like, they weren't there to hear the prophecy. But that's okay, because it was not just so much for them as it was for the people of God to know what those enemies would experience. So it was a way of comforting the people who were present to hear those messages of warning against the nations who would subdue them. In a similar way, James possibly, in a prophetic pattern, could be writing this passage to those who were poor, To those, the believers, Uh, and even though the passage is addressing the the rich non-Christians, it's a way of encouraging those who were there, whether poor or rich, to be careful of how they address and how they think about wealth and the pursuit of wealth. So in that sense, this passage is for all of us, whether we feel like we're rich or not. Whether we feel like we have resources or we don't whether we find our hearts pursuing the accumulation of resources and riches or not. How do we avoid the snares that come with wealth or the snares that come with the desire to accumulate wealth? A couple of things we will look at this morning, four points in particular. How do we avoid the snares that come with wealth or the accumulation of wealth? Here's point number one. Live in view of the coming judgment. Live in view of the coming judgment. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now notice this phrase, come now. Very similar to the, to the same phrase that was given in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say. In our text, James is addressing those who are um, already rich. In chapter 4, verse 13, he was addressing people who wanted to be rich. In, in James chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go in such and such a town, uh, will spend a year there, will trade and make a profit. That, that, that was people who were wanting to be rich, wanting to make money. Here in chapter 5, in our passage, he's addressing the people who made money, who have it now. James, again, is not against wealth. He's not against riches. He's addressing people who misuse their wealth, either on themselves, hoarding it in selfishness, or using it against people who acquire, in order to acquire and acquire it corruptly. Even if James is writing to non-believers as Christians, we need to hear these warnings that the Bible gives about riches. If the Lord chooses to bless some with greater material blessings— None of us should fall in the traps of a co- of that accompany these riches. Also, for those whom the Lord will not bless with material riches, this text helps us not to covet them. What does it mean to call someone to weep and howl? Well, the call to weep, um, but can you imagine you come to church, and you're given a call to weep and howl. I could just close the sermon right now and let you go home with that call. How about that? Would you you find that encouraging, to, to be called to weep and to howl? Well, in the Old Testament, the call to weep was often associated with warnings, about the coming judgment of the Lord. Isaiah 13:6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Isaiah 14:31. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. The prophet Amos, chapter 8, verse 3. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. Friends, you see how these calls, these references to weeping and wailing refer to the destruction that God will bring. The word howl means not just weep, not just cry, but cry with a loud voice. In other words, this weeping is not just the quiet weeping of the heart. It's not just the internal weeping. It's not just the the soft, silent remorse. Oh no, this is a loud, this is a vocal, this is a disturbing weeping. And often in the Old Testament, the weeping or wailing is the reaction of the wicked when the day of God's judgment does come. Thus James says, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, this phrase is not referring simply to the temporary miseries, although we'll see some of that as well, but it's referring to the miseries that are going to come because of the judgment of the Lord. These people whom whom James is addressing have ignored the judgment of God. They have not concerned themselves uh, with the fact that a day will come when they will have to give accountability to God, to the one who made them. They're not concerned with that. They're only concerned with their own lives, with making money. So the call James invites people to is a call to mourn in light of the coming judgment of God. It's not simply a call to be emotional about it. It's a call to a heartfelt, deeply engaging repentance. Because the day of accountability is coming. As we've read earlier in our in our service, Luke 12, uh, 13 to 21, the, the man who whom the Lord, you could say the Lord blessed with so many uh, with such a great harvest, and he didn't know what to do with his harvest. So he what he does, he, he tears up his current barn. So he could build a bigger one, so he could have more space to store it. And what does he do? He is simply storing it all for himself. He says, eat and drink and be merry. And the Lord meets him that night and calls him to judgment. And the Lord says to him, so it is, or Jesus says to, these, uh, to these, uh, those who are listening, so it is anyone who becomes rich only towards himself and not towards God. Well, oh, friends, live in view of the coming judgment of God. And let your view of possessions be affected by that day. Prepare for it. A second point that James brings out in verses 2 and 3 is that riches decay, so don't hoard them. Riches decay, so don't hoard them. Look at verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. There are a number of observations in this passage. James is pointing out that wealth can perish. Clothing, which was a commodity in ancient times they didn't have um, big walking closets uh, where you can just store stuff and uh, try to keep it clean and uh, away from moth Uh, it was much easier than today uh, for stuff to to be corrupted by moth it was riches uh, to to be rotten but interestingly James says even your gold and silver have corroded, now scientifically speaking if you will Gold and silver don't corrode. That's why they're precious metals. They're not easily corroded. And yet here, James is giving this picture that even that which you think cannot corrode does corrode. Even the things that this world will tell you, oh, it will not pass away. Oh, it is safe to put investments in this or that. No, friends, even that. Sooner or later, we'll have the marks of corrosion, the marks of decay, on them. Which is decay, so don't hoard them. Just remember, in this country, several decades ago, when people had resources, and then in one, in one short period of time, they woke up, and the money they had had lost all or most of its value. Overnight, a great depression hit this nation. Overnight, the, the value of money has plunged deep, has sunk deep. A rottedness of money that was on national scale. Well, friends, it can happen, and it can happen again. The things that you think are most stable, even they will have, sooner or later, the marks of rottedness. In a very similar way, Jesus warned his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Friends, one of the signs, one of the signs that God has given us new hearts, hearts that have been changed by the gospel, is that now we have a different point of reference for what is truly valuable, for what is truly worth living for, for where our treasures are stored. Our hearts no longer find ultimate satisfaction in what we can gather here on earth, but on what we can give away for the kingdom of God. Because we're convinced that nothing that we can keep, we can truly keep. But only that which we give away for the kingdom is being laid up in heaven. So riches decay, don't hoard them. Number three, the third encouragement that James gives us, or a a third warning, if you will, that James gives us to protect us from the snares that accompany riches and the accumulation of riches is this, the third point, misused riches can hurt us. Misused riches can hurt us. Now, friends, look at where where do we get this from, verse 3, second half of verse 3, their corrosion... The corrosion that we, were, we just spoke about in the first half of verse 3 and verse 2, now at the end of verse 3, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, it's amazing. We accumulate stuff because we think it will help us. We accumulate things because we believe that it will provide a safety net for us. We, be, we accumulate things because we, we, we have the impression that our life will be more satisfied by the more stuff we have. In reality, we are told that misused riches can actually hurt us. Now, the Greek word for corrosion, when it says their corrosion, the Greek word for corrosion here is the exact same word or sounds exactly the same way as the word for Poison. It's a word, "yos" in the Greek language. It's the same word which James used in chapter 3 when he spoke about the tongue. Remember in chapter 3, James spoke that the tongue is full of poison. And the tongue can set the whole course of life on fire. In chapter 3, James used the notion of of poison and, and fire together when he spoke about the tongue. In a similar way, James compares that here and uses that language to speak about wealth. I don't know how someone put it. Just as a tongue is compared to poison and destructive fire when misused, so also is wealth when misused. But what is misused wealth? What is misused wealth? Look at verse 5. You have lived... On earth in luxury and self-indulgence. In other words, instead of assisting the needs of others, instead of contributing to the the kingdom of God, they have been preoccupied about their own luxuries and self-indulgences. Quote: Someone said, A picture here we have a picture of life without self-denial, not necessarily corrupt in every way, but certainly offering no resistance to sin where there's promise of comfort and enjoyment. A similar similar picture of of this misusing of of wealth is found in in verse 5, the second half of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now this is another interesting way, of another interesting picture. What, What is James speaking about here? Fattening the heart? James says when this is done, the day of slaughter. Now, we should not think about the day of slaughter as simply human slaughter, as, as, as a human tragedy, um, as if we're just insensitive to human tragedy. Well, that, that possibly might be a, a way to understand it, but that's, what, not, that's not what James is really dealing about here. The day of slaughter, again, like the Old Testament prophets, was always referring to the day of judgment. This means that James is giving us a picture, an imagery taken possibly from the animal world in which fattened animals, the fatter they become, the closer they are to being slaughtered. That's why they're being fattened. That's why they're being put on the pastures. I love how Alec Motir describes this imagery. He says, like so many unthinking beasts luxuriating in their rich pastures day after day, growing fat by the hour and careless of the fact that each day, each hour, brings the butcher and the abator nearer. Only the thin beast is safe in that day. The well-fed has made itself ready for the knife. In such a way, James saw the wealth, blind alike to heaven and hell, living for this life, Forgetting the day of slaughter. Friends, the point that James is bringing here is that to accumulate and to focus on riches when we are living in what's called the last days is foolish. Focusing on just accumulating stuff without realizing that the day of the Lord is nearer and nearer is foolish. And by the way, for, for the New Testament writers, the last days have started with the first coming of Jesus. For the last 2,000 years, we live in this age called the last days. So think of, of, of this, whether God gives you many resources or few, here are some questions to, be, to consider. Think about how you look at your resources in light of the fact that we are living in the last days. Is your preoccupation with earthly means causing you to neglect your walk with God? Is your preoccupation with earthly means causing you to neglect your time in the Word, your participation in public worship, your serving the kingdom of God by serving others? Prince, does your preoccupation with resources impact you negatively, the godly influence you should have in your family, with your spouse or children, young adults, single adults, those of you students who are thinking about the life that is ahead of you and and the need for you to to set up life and start your jobs and think about the best job you could land on to start a good career, I want to challenge you to think about some questions that help you navigate this, this use, this right use of resources when you'll be making choices for what job you will land on, will you be making choices for a job that will affect your participation in a local church? Will, you, will that even come close to thinking about, should I take this job that will put my imperil will, will really affect my ability to be involved in the life of a local church? Or will I take this other job that's way less pay, but I am able to, to care well for my soul and for the souls of others? Will that even be a question in the way you think about setting your life moving forward? Misusing resources. Do you, do you think about setting your life in such a way that you realize we are living in the last days? For the last 2,000 years, we we'll have been living in last days. The kingdom of God is about to dawn in a visible way. It has already in a hidden way. Will my life show? Will the way I think about resources show that the kingdom of God has already come in a hidden way and I'm expecting it to come now in a visible way? Well, friends, Think of how easily it is for us to misuse resources. And you say, well, I don't have them. It doesn't matter. The way to acquire these resources can also be done in a misusing way. Friends, how, how I mourn internally when I see people make choices in their lives that shows that their hopes and their values are set for the kingdom of this earth. I wish I could say more. One of the things that persecution does for Christians is that it cuts off any hope of inheriting this earth. It cuts off any hope Of putting yourself um, hoping for the riches of this earth. Persecution just doesn't give you that ability to, 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 to be lured by that. So often, Christians in a persecuted context don't feel the pressure of that as much. But that is where our battle is here in the West. Because for us, that lure is strong, it is possible. So I want to encourage us to think about how do we use resources in a way that shows that we are living in the last days. Riches, or the pursuit of riches, can actually hurt us, not help. Fourthly, the last point that James brings out is that riches can actually corrupt us. Riches can actually corrupt us. Not only can they hurt us, they can actually corrupt us. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, in the Old Testament, God had given clear commands to His people how they should treat their workers or their employees or the poor. I'm going to read just one verse, although there's a number that we could go to. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. God says through Moses to the second generation of Israel, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land with your, within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cries against you to the Lord, and you will be guilty of sin. Even though this command was given clearly, more than once in the Old Testament, the people of Israel have failed to do us to do it. If you read the, the minor prophets in particular, they will bring over and over again this accusation as one of the main accusations among others, but one of the principal accusations that the people of Israel have actually failed to do this very thing. They have treated the poor unjustly. They have treated their resources with fraud. They have acquired wealth in a fraudulent way and have oppressed others. I love how John Calvin comments on this passage. He says, God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moth, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. And if God gives us some of those resources, they're given to us so we can give it to others. For the sake of the kingdom. Oh, friends, instead of of riches and accumulating them for our safety and well being, realize that riches can actually corrupt us. We become insensitive to the needs of others. Worse, people can actually accumulate riches by fraud. Their pursuits of riches exploit the poor or exploit truth and justice fraudulent ways. Oh, friends, even Christians if they have businesses, or even in a workplace, we can fall for fraudulent, fall for the traps of fraud. Pray that the Lord protects all of us from any of this. But realize that for the sake of money, we're willing to fall into fraud. They forgot that mistreating their workers, not giving wages on time, they're actually acting against the Lord. Look at verse 6. James concludes his condemnation against the corruption which the rich rich have fallen into. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person even though he does not resist you. Instead of giving away and helping others, promoting the spread of the gospel, instead of assisting the needy, we keep it to ourselves. We become insensitive or even take what belongs to others and take it for ourselves. I love how the Apostle Paul encouraged uh, encouraged Timothy how to instruct the rich. If we saw in James the negative of what not to do, I want to point to remind you of what the positive of how James should instruct the rich. In First Timothy chapter 6 verse, 16, 17 and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. Charge them what? Charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh well, friends, we should we should get chills in realizing what James is warning us against. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament have warned the people of Israel, and just like the people of Israel have fallen in the snares that come with riches of, or the accumulation of riches. Oh, friends, they are traps and lures. Many of us, when we think of more money or more wealth, the first thing that comes to our mind is blessing, right? The first thing that come, comes to mind when we think more resources. We think just more blessings from the Lord. And it's true, the Lord can bless us with those. But I want us this morning to start making room for another category in our minds when God and if God, should God bless us with riches and material resources. They're not just the blessings of the Lord. They're also opportunities through which we can be lured and snared into false thinking and false confidence. So take riches, take, take resources with a bittersweet reaction. On one side, the, the, the sweetness is they come from the hands of the Lord. The Lord gives them to us. But at the same time, take it with caution that they don't bring the lures. Well, they always will bring the lures, but don't, let, don't fall for the lures that come with them. Let that bittersweet experience Characterize your way as you think about resources. How can we avoid the snares that come with wealth? Four things we've looked at this morning. Live in view of the coming judgment. Second, riches decay, so don't hoard them. Third, misused riches can actually hurt us. Lastly, riches can also corrupt us. That's the only way, the only true hope we have against falling into the snares of wealth and riches is to remind ourselves of the gospel. One of my favorite ways of sharing the gospel with a non-believer or with a believer is to remind them of the two parables that Jesus gives about the kingdom of God, of what this kingdom that he came to, to communicate, what is it like What is this kingdom of righteousness like? And Jesus gave two parables. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And I ask you, and I like to ask those to whom I speak, friend, do you realize that when we get Jesus, we get this treasure that is more more precious than anything else we could own? Do you understand that when when we get Jesus, It's like the merchant who collects rich pearls. And when he finds Jesus, when he finds the kingdom of God, he realizes it dawns on him, this kingdom, this Jesus is more valuable than anything else I've owned. And for the sake of it, it is worth for me to sell everything I have, put everything in a different basket and get Jesus. I like to ask believers, Who have turned to Christ or claim to be believers? I ask him and I ask you this morning. Is this the Jesus you follow? Is this the Jesus you have responded to when you first believed in Christ? Is this the Jesus you worship, the one who presents his kingdom? as a treasure hidden in a field for the sake of which a man will consider everything else rubbish? Is this how you see the kingdom of God? This is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is like. It's only when we understand this picture of Jesus and of what he is for us that we can use wealth in a right way, in a way that glorifies God, in a way that will not lure us. And one of the ways for us to stay away, to to tame our hearts from the lures of riches or accumulation of riches, is to remind ourselves of the Jesus who preached that he is more precious than anything we can get. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to understand the riches of your kingdom, the treasure and and preciousness of what you have given to us in Christ and what awaits every one of us at the second coming of Christ. Father, give us hearts that are like Zacchaeus, willing to give up what we have accumulated because of what we, you have given us already give us hearts that will not treasure our resources more than treasuring Christ Father protect the hearts of the members of this congregation from the lures of riches Father help us to put our confidence and hope fully in you help us to be good stewards of the blessings you give us. Father, you have given us blessings above and beyond what we deserve. Help us to be good stewards of them in a way that will not hurt our souls, in a way that will not hurt the testimony of your gospel. Father, we pray that we would use the resources you give us in a way that honors you, in a way that spreads the gospel. Father, we pray for this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen.